welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. Today, we got a Q&A. And I want to thank everybody to, uh, who is listening to this podcast, whether you are new or a previous listener. Um, thank you for being here again, or thank you for showing up and listening to us for the first time. We appreciate it more than you know. And when you listen, when you comment and share on Instagram, share it with a friend, when you leave a review, a rating, it helps us grow more and more. And that is why this podcast is successful. So thank you so much. Um, I actually had a cool, actually, I'm just going to pull it up. Um, it's related to this. I had uh, Ashley on the team. She sent me a screenshot. Um, She's like, oh, I'm in a random like fitness Facebook group. And somebody asked a question about something. And this lady, shout out to Holly Hitchin. If you're listening, love you, appreciate you. Cody McBroom does a ton of free, she's basically just recommending our stuff to somebody random on Facebook. But it's just cool when like, they don't know that we're watching, but somebody from our team is like watching, you know. Um, I found, I think I've told you this, I've found stuff uh, like threads about us on uh, Reddit. Reddit, yeah, yeah. Um, Cody McBroom does a ton of free ebook content. His site is the Tailored Coaching Method. He also has an IG. He has three podcasts. If you scroll way back in his episodes, and he talks about macros and periodization, he drops a few f bombs. So don't be put off by that. Cody knows what he is doing. And then she linked us, and then she said commented on her own thing. So Tailored Life Podcast episode five thirty three, five thirty seven, five thirty nine. So plenty of detail. She's like literally spreading it. So thank you so much. Stuff like that literally does help us grow the, the podcast. And that's also why we try to put so much free value into it yeah. because that's what happens. Word of mouth. So sick. So I love seeing that stuff. Um, so thank you, Holly. Um, anybody else who, who notices somebody who needs help, do the same thing. Like it's literally just free and you're just lending a hand. And when you do that, you're affecting lives. Like I don't think people realize it's like a trickle effect. Could be know? one, could be a hundred. Yeah, you don't know. So thank you so much for doing that. We appreciate it. Um, quick, uh, quick announcement uh, just to, continue to update people um we are getting very very close uh on the tailored life apparel side of things uh to launching so we tailored coach method we put out some stuff for for our members so uh, for anybody who's listening who's a client or a member if you did not order a crop top or a crew neck or a tank we do have some still available the crew necks are unisex we're limited on size of those because those went quick the crop tops are obviously female shirts, and then we have racerback tanks and regular tanks for guys that are really sick. Um, but the tailored life apparel side of things, we are getting ready to launch. I just did all of the basically copy for, you know, the material breakdown, the shipping, the sizing, the um, what is each like. I, I, you got to name the shirts, which is really dope too. So like. Mm. Um, we got the the OG tailored T is dropping the OG crew neck and we're doing OG because it's the original logo so OG stands for original but um, I mean technically it stands for original gangster but um, we're just using it as original um, and then the mesh shorts uh, I have the final sample coming I think it actually gets here today mm. and then uh, we're putting the mass order in to start pumping these out next week so i'm very very excited um mesh shorts uh we actually got high socks too so like the the like knee socks not that high okay not like crew socks technically okay yeah um but but i would like i mean this is how fucking detail oriented we are man i literally (laughs) i measured 
all of my favorite socks yeah. to get the exact height I wanted per size of like the tube part. Totally. Because sometimes when you get crew shocks and they're too short, they just look, they're like in that in-between phase. Yeah. It just looks weird. And then if you get fucking tube socks or to your knees, that looks weird too. Um, but they're dope with the, the TLA logo on the side. So those will be really sick. Um, the, the tailored life apparel shorts, the mesh shorts, double layer, extra stitching, thick waistband, drawstrings on the outside. So it doesn't wrinkle under your shirt, flat drawstrings. Cause we didn't like the round cheap looking ones. Um, the, we went with a, a special heat transfer process for the logo to make sure that it's, it's embossed up a little bit, lasts longer. And it's like just clean as can be. Um, and you don't see the mesh material through it. It's like a solid, solid fucking logo. Um, the five and a half inch inseam for those who are wondering about that. I mean, like we just, that's why it's been taking so long. I've just been so nitpicky with everything, but if we're going to be called tailored, it's got to be fucking legit. You Dialed. Know? So, um, and then the crew neck too. The crew neck is, uh, for, for those of you who know the weights and that kind of stuff, 450 GSM, we might even bump it up a notch, but really heavyweight crew neck. Uh, so it'll last long, but also gives you that like comfortable, like heavy feeling. And it just looks way cleaner when mm. it's, when it's that heavy material. Um, with the big OG logo on the back, small tailored logo on the front. Super, super fucking excited for them to drop. Yep. So um, the website's almost done. I just finished a bunch of the copy. Um, once we have, uh, we're going to, which you'll be helping me with if you don't know yet, but um, <laughs> uh, photos. Yep. So um, we got some really cool ideas for the site that we're going to, we just got like a, a handful of photos we need to finish and then we'll be done with the site. And I got some really cool, cool ideas for, for the photos that we'll put in there and then, and then we'll be ready to go, but super excited. So it'll be, um, fall time. I mean, September, October launch. Um, but the material, the sizing, the fitting, the look, like everything is just so top notch. I'm really, really excited about it. So be on the lookout guys. We're getting really, really close to this next endeavor. Very excited. Um, between that and the Taylor trainer, dude, I'm like filled with anxiety, like good anxiety. Just like I just want to release this stuff. Yeah. Like it just get it going. It's building up, building up, building up, and it's so close. It's like, yeah, I'm losing sleep over it. But <laughs> it's gonna be awesome, man. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. But that's like round Black Friday. Mm -hmm. Dope. Yeah, the the anticipated drop of the Taylor Trainer 2.0, which is not gonna be called that, but um, is Black Friday. That's what we're hoping for to yep. launch it. Then um, all the members of the current Taylor Trainer will give you guys first access to to shift over. Um, and then everybody else will get in, but it's, I mean, again, same, same thing with, uh, the, the apparel thing. It's just like, it's taking in the app stuff is actually going pretty quick, relatively speaking. I mean, to build an app and the coding, all this stuff is just, I don't even, I can't even comprehend Tedious. some of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause I don't know how to do that stuff, but I, there's just so much work involved. Um, and that's what's funny. Like when people give recommendations of an app and they're like, well, why don't you just have it automatically do this? And it's like, I don't think you realize how long it takes a coder to code and create the process in an app software for it mm -hmm. to automatically, quote unquote, Automate, do that. Yeah. Um, I didn't. And then once I had meetings with these people, I was like, holy shit, there's a lot involved in this. But to the point, there's so many apps that are for fitness, but created by tech guys. And that's the biggest problem is that the tech guys know tech. They don't know fitness. So that's the biggest um, roadblock, excuse me, biggest roadblock from cr like ideology to like a functioning, really cool app, which is nice that we have Lee on the team because he is, he does both, you yeah. know, and he can really translate to the coders for me. But, um, 
some of the process, I mean, like every little detail of the programming between the AMRAPs and EDTs to the circuits, to the supersets, to the, the rest intervals, to the progression, to the way you count metrics. Like I've been able to look at all these apps, including my own, and just like, what is the perfect way to do all these things, yeah. you know, for the user? And I'm way more focused on the user than the back end, like me putting in the programs, because even if that takes me an arm and a leg to do, because there's so many details to fill out and figure out, which there is because... I mean, there's time sets, rep base sets, there's AMRAP sets, then there's Go weighted on, time on, sets, yeah. there's non-weighted time sets, there's tempo sets. There's, I mean, there's just so many things that you have to filter on the programming side, which when I'm writing in a Google Doc, I just type it. Super easy, you yeah. know, but this is going to be able to, I mean, there's going to be no confusion for people. So, um, and that doesn't even include all the shit you and I have already started, but have film. to film <laughs> just yeah. to make it, you know, all come together. So, um, yeah, it's, I'm excited. So be on the lookout, guys. Dope. Big things coming. I'm excited. So should we get into it? Let's get into we it. We got the first question today coming from Becca. It says, I have been in a reverse diet since January of this year in preparation for my wedding in September. I began at 2,000 calories, worked up to 2,750, and am now in the end stages of my cut eating 1,800 calories. After my wedding, I would like to go back to maintenance, which I feel is around 22 or 23. Would I go straight to maintenance calories, or would I work my way up gradually to see how my body is responding? Okay, so, <clears throat> sorry, would she go, straight, repeat the last part? Straight to maintenance, or work her way up. And where her work calories at? When? Right all now? All the above, yeah. Uh, began at 2,000, went all the way up to 2,750, but now is in a cut at 1,800. Okay. Um, okay, so you've been all over the place. Um, from 2,000, reversed up to 2,700. Now she's at 1,850 for calories. And she thinks her maintenance is at 22 or 23. Okay. Um, did she say how much weight she lost? She did not. Okay, sorry. I was obviously halfway listening. Um, that's a big predicator. So, like, if you if you calculate somebody's maintenance – we have to know their weight, right? So you're generally looking at somebody's age, weight, height, gender, and then activity level. So when we're calculating maintenance caloric intake, we look at their BMRs, age, weight, height. There's different formulas for it, but they all essentially use age, weight, height, gender. That gives you a number. That's their basal metabolic rate. And then you times that by 1, 1 1.2, 1.5, 1.7, like depending on how much activity they have. That gives you your, your general number. But if I don't have their weight, I mean, that's a huge chunk of that formula. Definitely. So I can't tell you exactly where I would go, but what I would say is if you think 22, 2300 is where your predicted maintenance is at, and that's based on you hypothetically thinking just because you've dieted down, I would say that's probably inaccurate. If it's because you're basing that off of a legit calculation from your weight, I would say that's probably accurate and you should, you, you should be fine to go up to that. So I think the smartest thing to do in any of these situations, realistically, if we're trying to avoid weight gain is to go, okay. Um, 2,700 was what I was maintaining my weight at before I got into this cut. Um, obviously you were maintaining a weight that is heavier than what you are and want to stay at because you've lost weight. We don't know how much, yeah. or did she say? Nope. No. So we don't know how much, but you've obviously cut and I'm assuming successfully cause you're ready to reverse out of it. So you've lost weight. And so, you know, and you're okay with it not being 2,700 anymore. But what I would do and what most people should do is then calculate where your new maintenance would be, 
um, hypothetically speaking, from a formula. So use the Harris-Benedict formula, use the Mifflin-St-Gior, whatever formula you want. I like the Mifflin-St-Gior. Um, you can use the, the TDEE calculator on our website. We have one there for you. Um, calculate that. If it gives you 2,300, that's probably where your new maintenance is, right? If it gives you 2,100, that's where your new maintenance is. Now, we also know that maintenance is a range, not a set number. So that is like your target, right? That's your destination. But that's like me saying, I mean, we're, this facility, like we live in Bonnie Lake, right? Like we're here. Bonnie Lake is a city. So if you tried to find our warehouse and you just typed in Bonnie Lake, you would end up in Bonnie Lake and then you would have a 10 mile radius, 20 mile radius to figure out, right? So with maintenance calories, that's your first starting point. Get to the city, which is 2,100 if that's what it gives you. And then you're going to float around there one, two, 300 calories, depending on how adaptive your metabolism is, how dynamic your metabolism is where you're going to be within that range. So if it says 2,100, it's probably somewhere between 19 and 2,300, for example. Could be between 2,000 and 2,200. Could be between 1,800 and 24. It's different person to person, but there's a range. So calculate with a formula to figure out what your first goal target is to get to. And then I would slowly reverse up to that as long as your biofeedback isn't bad. If your biofeedback is bad, which I don't think she mentioned that either, really, nope. which is fine. Um, but if your biofeedback's bad and you are craving food a lot, you're um, having binge episodes on the weekends, your performance is shit, menstrual cycle issues, anything like that, that is serious enough for you to go, I can't take this slow, just go right up to that 2100. And then you can adjust up or down from there. Um, but that's probably what you're going to want to do. I, I personally am... am of the belief that I don't see any point of going aggressive or fast or going straight to your maintenance unless, A, you're a competitive bodybuilder because if you're a competitive bodybuilder, you need to get into a surplus as soon as possible, which means you got to find your maintenance as soon as possible because as soon as you're done with a cut, it's a sport. So your in-season is done when you get off stage and now you're in an off-season and it means let me get out of this deficit, repair, and then go into a surplus as soon as possible to spend as much time in my off-season building muscle. Yeah. But if you spend half your off-season slowly reversing up, you have half the amount of months in your off-season to actually build muscle, which makes you an unsuccessful and unproductive bodybuilder. But for those of you who are not bodybuilders, I don't see any reason to go fast or go immediately to your maintenance or above your maintenance unless you are in a unhealthy position, which most of the time, gen pop people really just aren't. Um, and more, more often than not, I see that when they are, it's primarily due to temporary uh, caloric restriction, not because of anything else. Because truly, like when we think of, and I think this is where people get confused with reverse dieting and recovery dieting and stuff, truly detrimental and worrisome negative symptoms and biofeedback from dieting are primarily going to be based on body fat percentage, body fat levels, and um, overtraining. This is why it's called the female athlete triad right and excuse me this is where we see uh menses and shit like that this is where we see amenorrhea um so the female athlete triad is 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 basically um there's another reds relative energy deficit syndrome so this there's it's basically that for females and it's when they lose their menstrual cycle it's when they go through serious uh hormonal issues from dieting but it's not really from dieting it's from training too much potentially dieting so two stresses phys physically and being too lean like we see this in like all-star track athletes or crossfit athletes that are shredded right that's not gem pop losing a few pounds so usually when somebody is like I'm having uh, negative biofeedback hormonally, physically, physiologically, whatever. It's primarily from caloric restriction. And if that's the case, 
then we just need to get your calories up. If you want to maintain the level of leanness you got, you do have to be okay with being a little patient and going slowly. Knowing that, yeah, it might take a few extra weeks to get these negative biofeedback markers up, but they're going to come up as long as my calories come up. And they're going to go back down if my calories go down. And if you're okay with that, you can stay lean. If it's so bad that you can't be okay with that, it's understandable, but you would have to just increase your calories extremely fast, but you can't expect to stay lean as well. So you can't have your cake and eat too. You got to pick one or the other. Um, But more often than not, I think that's the case. And I think that most people who want to stay lean, you should should just increase your calories semi-slowly until you get to that new predicted maintenance based off of a formula. Um, And whether you're at, I mean- 90% 90% of the time, you're not going to actually land right on that number, and that's the number you end on. It's usually going to be somewhere around there because it's always a range. That's why when we coach people through reverse diets, it's never just this perfect linear process to a destination. Um, but I also always encourage uh, not introducing highly palatable foods, like actually sticking to your kind of quote-unquote meal plan and clean eating style for a little while as well because when you're reintroducing calories if you do so with highly palatable or highly processed foods it is going to trigger you to eat more and you're going to fall off your your reverse diet's not going to go well not because it wasn't planned properly but because you're going to go over calories too often Mm. because of mistracking or having little episodes of like oh i started having some and then i just went a little overboard and yeah because you had highly processed foods um and highly palatable foods mainly which is the harder to hear yeah Exactly. Well, I mean, and highly palatable foods, um, highly processed foods just aren't as filling and nu- nutritious. So I usually don't recommend them, but technically like whey protein or a protein bar is highly processed too. You know what I mean? So it's not necessarily that. Highly processed? I mean, it, I mean, think I, about it. Didn't you talk to the, uh, Bill about that? Yeah. yeah. But I mean, if you think about, I would consider it that I would consider it a healthy, highly processed yeah. food. Sure. But like, I mean, if you think about definition, the processing just to take milk and turn it into a powder that you can consume sure. without all the fat and carbs and lactose. That's processing. And then you take that and you make it hard in a bar with low-calorie chocolate. I mean, what kind of processing goes in to make chocolate healthy? (laughs) You know what I mean? Low-calorie. So I I think it's – but again, those aren't bad. Highly palatable foods, though, that's where, like, the the classic example of taking a potato. Like, Mm. how many plain baked potatoes can you eat? Not that many because it's not really – I mean, it's satiating as hell because it fills you up. But it's really – I mean, it's just bland. You add salt to it, you can eat a little more. You add butter and salt – game over salt fat carbohydrate together is like it's like a a orgasm on your tongue like literally grass-fed butter yeah especially (laughs) um and if you haven't had Kerrygold grass-fed butter compared to regular butter like do yourself a favor yeah you're welcome yeah there's a i I had this debate with my mother-in-law because she was like it's just butter she buys the cheap stuff she's like it's just butter i'm like no it's not but you're gonna have some of this butter she came over and she had the butter and it was like now she only buys Kerrygold because it's like it's it What's literally that, tastes that different. fake um, surprise. It's butter or something. It's called. Uh, can't believe it's not butter. Oh, maybe that's it. it yeah. Is, yeah. 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 Margarine is Margarine. like fake butter. Yeah. But can't believe it's not butter was the brand. Yeah. And uh, I can definitely believe it's not butter. Yeah. <laughs> totally. I mean, you remember the spray bottle of that stuff? That's what I was kind of yeah. thinking. Yeah. I used to use that shit. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Until I really like learned about nutrition and then I looked at the <laughs> label and it says zero calories per quarter millisecond spray <laughs> no way like, i i can't even i mean that's like a you can't spray that i can't even spray that much yeah that's nothing like i'm taking my steamed broccoli and just drenching <laughs> this bitch because i'm like oh this is zero calorie no no that's hilarious yeah um so that's yeah that's my advice cool all right we will go to the next one it comes from sheesh uh or shishi uh why do people think 
they need to work their abs every single day to get abs. They say that they say that is what their husband does, and they have an eight pack year round. <laughs> is that a common thing? I don't know about the second part, but yeah. <laughs> doing abs every single day. So, um, I think there's some truth to it. I think I there's, the, I think there's there's three things that apply. Uh, that are necessary to bring up, I would say, to to this conversation. Um, Number one is genetics, and this will be brief, but it's just, it needs to be said. Genetics play a role in abs, for sure. Um, I would say the two main muscle groups that genetics play the biggest role in are calves and abs. And it's, and it's, calves are less genetics. I would say people always say it's like, oh, you're genetically gifted or not with calves, but it's actually like more biomechanics. Like mm-hmm. how long are your limbs? How much like, are you more anterior, posterior dominant? So depending on where your, your weight kind of shifts during exercises and during every fucking step you walk throughout the day, that's going to create more tension on your calves. You're going to develop calves easier or more difficultly than the next person. But genetics in general do play a role in abs. Um, one, because of the way that they are placed. So some people have like longer ab bellies. Some people have shorter ab bellies. Some people have thicker ab bellies. So when we see this, it makes some more prominent than others. It also makes some more easily visible than others because genetics also play a role in where your body stores body fat. Um, male to female, there's a big difference there, but also even like male to male to male. You can have two guys who are both at 10% body fat and one can barely see his abs. One can see shredded abs. Like there's, there's a huge difference. Um, and that person who has shredded abs might actually hold more body fat elsewhere or even internally, which is actually not healthy, you know, because it's, it's inside around your organs and things like that, which is not a healthy thing to have um, too much of because that can actually cause illness, disease issues, you know, long, totally. long line, you know, um, but genetics play a role in how easy it is to see abs and the, the size, the shape, the development, and all that stuff. So that plays a role for sure. Um, the second thing to bring up is nutrition. You are not going to see your abs unless you get lean. So I know people back in the day who would do abs every day and the ab exercises they were doing were stupid and they weren't periodizing it. So they would adapt to it and they're never really progressively overloading their abs ever because they do the same hundred sit-ups a day, every day for two years straight. I'm sorry, but you adapted to that and you haven't progressed it. So you're no longer creating further progressive adaption from it, right? Just like a muscle. If I do a bent row with 135 pounds for eight reps and next year I'm still doing a bent row for 135 pounds for eight reps, I'm no longer growing because that stimulus isn't creating an effect that causes an adaptation anymore, right? The abs are a muscle the same way. But um, there's people that would do that, but they were lean enough, so you would always see their abs. So you're like, fuck, that's what, I got to do 100 sit-ups a day. Yeah. It's like, no, that guy's just shredded. He's just lean. He's genetically gifted or his diet's on point. He's lost a lot of fat. You can see his abs, you know? Um, and the reason I know that's true is because you can take a Olympic lifter who does zero abs, let's say. And Olympic lifters usually do some form of abs, but they don't do direct, like, um, sit-ups and stuff. They do functional ab training that's going to f- uh, help them clean uh, clean and jerk and, and snatch and things like that better for their sport. But they'll have shred abs. Why? Because they have strong cores and they're lean. So you can see them. Um I didn't do a single fucking sit-up before my physique competition, and you could easily see my abs because I got shredded. I think I could have developed them better, and that's a different story, but it just goes to show as long as you get lean enough, you'll see them. So um, you can't, you got to take it with a grain of salt. You have to look at somebody like, are they just lean or do they actually have And you can tell. Like some people have abs that literally pop out more. Um, and the third thing here outside of diet and genetics is just the proper training stimulus. So number one, 
there is some merit to what you're asking here because the abs can handle a high level of frequency and probably should. And, and the reason, one, is because, like some will say, the, the ty- uh, fiber type makeup and just the way that the muscle itself is built, certain muscles can handle more. Like uh, usually stabilizing muscles typically can handle more frequency because they recover faster. So, for example, like the traps. You can uh, do band pull parts and face pulls every single fucking day. You're not going to overtrain your traps because your traps are activated in so many exercises as stabilizers that they're used to being stimulated and recovering quickly. Gotcha. Um, if you were to train your chest pecs every day, you would probably tear your pec at some point. Yeah. They, they're not there to handle that. Same thing with your quads or whatever. Um, so... Certain muscles can handle a high frequency better than others. Abs are one of those. Um, another reason why high frequency works well is because if you were to do, let's say you did low frequency, so you only train them twice a week, but you did a lot of volume. So you did like, let's say like 10 sets of abs in a single day. And then tomorrow you don't do any abs, but you come in and you go to do an overhead press with a barbell standing or a barbell back squat or a deadlift. Your abs are going to be so sore, they're probably going to cramp and that's going to limit your ability to overhead press or squat. So the reason high frequency for abs works well is because you can do a lower volume, not create so much DOM, so muscle soreness, and it doesn't negatively impact the compound lifts that you're going to be doing in the preceding days because the abs are stimulated in every single compound lift and functional. I mean, if you do a a dumbbell lunge, your core is working to stabilize you. So because of that, you don't want to overtrain your abs in any one session because they're constantly being fired. So it works really well to do two or three, four sets max of abs and doing them three, four, five, six days a week, you know, just touching them every day, just a little bit and stimulating them a little bit further. Um, But to that point too, you have to vary your stimulus. So I always tell people the best way to hypertrophy abs is to train them in a pattern that you don't typically do inside the compound lifts. So if we look at a barbell squat or a deadlift or a overhead press or any functional strength exercise done for other body parts, typically what your tri- like what your abs are doing is stabilizing um, to avoid anti so to avoid extension or flexion, which means you're basically doing like a standing plank. So when I do an overhead press, I'm doing a plank. I compress my rib cage. I'm keeping my trunk completely stiff, and I'm overhead pressing in that position. A plank is just me doing that on the floor, right? Um, if I am doing um, if I'm doing overhead press and I'm trying to avoid hyperextending, I'm also, that's anti-extension, right? A plank is anti-extension because as I get tired, my low back wants to sink in and I'm trying to avoid that extension, right? Um, It just looks different because your hips are sinking to the floor versus your chest sinking backwards or your shoulders falling backwards, right? In a standing position. Um, If you're doing anything with dumbbells at your sides, um, you are avoiding uh, anti-rotation. So like anti-lateral rotation as well. So um, think of... A farmer's carry, um, uh, anti-rotation, like pal-off press, anything like that. You're basically avoiding leaning side to side, like oblique twist kind of thing, or rotating your spine um, because you have two dumbbells on each side and you're doing a unilateral movement. So your body is semi-twisting and you're avoiding that twisting rotation. So you can kind of, you don't need to do a bunch of pal-off presses and side planks and all those things to build your core. The Deadlift is definitely training anti-flexion because you're trying to avoid rounding your back, but that is probably the one the one movement pattern you're not doing a ton of, and it stimulates the abs directly the most is flexion, spinal flexion. So if you're trying to hypertrophy your abs, you basically want to do a bunch of variations of spinal flexion totally. and then maybe some anti-extension flexion, so like an ab wheel, for example. But if you were to do like a weighted sit-up, 
and then an ab wheel and then like a body weight setup for high reps, like a crunch. So I like saying crunch over sit up because I think people sit up and they keep their rib cage up, chest up. Now their hip flexors doing most of the work. Whereas, and you can see this on our YouTube, we have that one video. Um, on a crunch, you are rounding your spine as much as you can. So you can actually flex the abs. That's going to be more uh, of a stimulating exercise for your abs. Um, and then the fourth day doing like a ab wheel or uh, I already said a, a hanging leg raise, which would be the other anti-extension slash spinal flexion. So if you rotated four exercises, weighted, weighted crunch for like 10 reps and then an ab wheel for five to 10 reps and then a body weight crunch with high tension for let's say 20 reps or so high reps and then a hanging leg raise or like a lying leg raise off a bench or something for as many reps you can. That's four days of abs and you could just rotate through those and those are the biggest bang for your buck from an aesthetic perspective. But I definitely do think there's merit to saying a higher frequency is better and most strength coaches would agree with that for all the reasons I just said. And then there's just the adage of like, if you're not lean enough, you can do all the sit-ups in the world and you won't see them. However, I do think this is where people go wrong as well. They, they, they know that and they're like, well, I'm not gonna spend that much time doing abs because I just gotta get lean, which is true. So but they get lean and then when they get there, their abs aren't that impressive. That's kind of like what you're saying with your show. Exactly. So what I did in my show was that, and I could see my abs, but they just weren't, they weren't popping out like I wanted them to or expect them to because I was in like, it was in the functional time where I was like, you don't need to do any isolation, just lift heavy. And I was wrong. <laughs> um, so, and there's a lot of like gung-ho strength coaches, like old school guys that that's what they believe, but they also don't get lean enough and bodybuild. And once you do, you realize, totally. oh, you need isolation work. Um, so what I would do different is even though I can't see my abs developing while I'm doing all these sit-ups, I would do the sit-ups and the hang leg raise and the progressive overload on my abs and getting better and, and stimulating more while I was still too fat, essentially. I had too much body fat to see them until I got lean enough to see them. And then once I finally got lean enough to see them, I would see the fruits of my labor, right? And it, and it is a frustrating thing because if you do it that way, you wouldn't have known if it worked or didn't because when you get there, you wouldn't have known if they were going to be smaller without, yeah. but I can just tell you from experience, you will see your abs sooner in the cut. So you won't have to be as lean to see them. And when you get that lean, they'll pop out way more. So, yeah. So yes and no. Yeah. Totally. All right. Let's uh, move on to the next one. We got one coming from Beatrice Moore. It says, first of all, thank you for answering my previous question. And also thank you for an amazing podcast and free materials that, you have had available for everyone. My question is, I'm pretty sure I can't afford coaching one-on-one. Can I download the app and do your programs there? And if so, what would do you recommend recommend to lose fat or weight at home? You can, uh, it does cost money. Um, but it is $29 a month, which is a fraction of the cost of coaching. Now you are not going to get nutrition coaching with the app. I'm just going to be totally blown with that. Nutrition coaching is highly individualized. Uh, the accountability is one of the most priceless aspects of it. And you can't put that in an app. You can't put that in a group. You just can't, uh, plain and simple. So, but I highly encourage the app. You should definitely do that. Um, there between, I mean, like, so her question with losing fat is, is what do I recommend to lose fat or? Yep. Can I download the app and do your programs there? And if so, which one do you recommend to lose fat or weight at home? Oh, okay. So what program do I recommend? Um, if you're at home, it's going to be home base, which is a band and body weight only program and uh, garage grinder, which is a garage gym program. Um, and this is me being totally transparent too. They're, those are the only two programs, uh, both of which are 12 weeks long. Garage grinder might be eight weeks long. You could easily repeat it twice for 16 weeks because it changes throughout the, the program. And then um, by the time you get to the end of it, 
if you go back to the beginning, they're all like new exercises for you. That's the way it, it's using a undulated periodization model. So you can easily repeat that over and over again. Um, however, the purpose of the app is mainly for people who have gyms. And I, I'm just going to say that transparently because even with the new app coming out, we're not going to have a bunch of home gym workouts uh, or I'm sorry, home workouts, home gym workouts are different because most people's home gym has the basic stuff, right? You got dumbbells, a bench, squat rack, like that's pretty easy to program with. And there will be programs that can be easily modified for that. Um, however, um, it, it's just not what we designed it for. We didn't design it for a bunch of home workouts. And I only said to people because there's, I want people to know before they sign up, like this is for pro and this is why there's only the two programs in there is because there's only like the home base one. It uses just bands of body weight. It shifts through like three or four different types of splits from like upper, lower to full body to push pull legs to like a anterior posture. Like it does all these different things because there's only so many at home work exercises you can do. So like being able to progress and periodize a, a home workout with just bands of body weight is actually pretty fucking difficult. Um, unless you are a calisthenics guy. If you're a calisthenics guy, then you are somebody who is trying to work on like levers and, and all these kind of crazy tricks on bars and stuff like that. And that is different. And this is not what we do. Um, however, what I would recommend is uh, the home base one if you don't have any equipment and the garage grinder one if you do. Both of which are uh, home base shifts between four and six days a week. Um, it's six days a week no matter what. So you have the option of doing like some optional days. Um, but the uh, but Garage Grinder is an upper lower split. It's a great program. Um, it's an upper lower functional strength training split. That would be great for fat loss. I don't, I don't think. Um, yeah. And, and I would recommend eventually trying to find a cheap gym. Yeah. Even Planet Fitness, anything like that. Planet Fitness is like 10 bucks a month or something. Yeah. Um, it is worth I'm pretty sure it is. I know. It? I thought at one point I thought it was five. Yeah. I mean, it might be. It's yeah. cheap. Yeah. And like they don't have barbells and squat racks, but they have Smith machines. They have machines. They have dumbbells. They have plenty. I have clients, one-on-one -on -one clients that have to do some of their sessions there because that's all that's around them. Um, and we make it work. Get it I done. Mean, the, at the end of the day, I think that the problem with my, my biggest issue with home gyms or not even home gyms because like, I mean, remember my home gym, it was fucking stacked. Yeah. Some people have those gyms. Um, we're giving away a pretty dope home gym thing for the golf tournament this weekend as a gift, um, as a, well, raffle. Somebody's got to win the raffle. Oh. Um, did I tell you about that yet? No. Oh yeah. Uh, us and giant are collaborating on it. It's going to be cool. Um, so we're giving away a month of coaching and then we're giving a, a, a squat rack that folds out of the wall, a barbell, 160 pounds of plates, like mm. whole deal. I thought you were the raffle. I thought that was for the next Instagram giveaway. Um, originally we were going to, gotcha. but now we're part of a Memorial golf charity event and was like this is the perfect time to do the giveaway that's sick um everybody who joins the raffle has to follow me on instagram there we go i'm just joking but <laughs> we can't make that qualification <laughs> but um we have to see your phone go follow cody but uh no but like um my biggest issue with the garage gyms when is when we have limited equipment so i had a call with somebody recently and that was their that was their thing i was like man you're gonna and this is me being this is how like honest we are on sales calls literally because she was trying to sign up for coaching i was like i'm, I'm gonna tell you something you don't want to hear um i believe they're working with us but like at the time i was like i'm just gonna i gotta be honest with you um i think you're going to have to invest in more equipment or go to a gym because like they didn't like to go to the gym they wanted to work out at home but they were limited their dumbbells only went up so high and they didn't barbells so i'm like hey you guys you and your husband have lifting for a long time from what you're telling me you guys are both strong you guys are both really into this stuff and you've maxed out the weights you have at your gym and you can't, yeah, you can't just start doing 40 reps per set. Like yeah. there just comes a time where you have to progressively overload and with bands and body weight, it is extremely difficult to get to that place. But 
for somebody like this, you can use that as a weight loss tool. But to sustain the weight loss after the fact, you're going to want to progress. So like use the, the home base one for now, just bands. You can order those on Amazon for 20 bucks. Get, get through that, lose the weight. And then as you max out those bands, you're probably going to need to get like an adjustable dumbbell set and a bench. And then once you max those out, maybe you get a kettlebell and a TRX. And then once you max those out, you get a barbell. You know what I mean? You can slowly progress it. Um, I think everybody eventually is just going to need to to lift some weights though. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's got to be a significant amount of time between you maxing out all those different 100%. things, but yeah. work towards that, I guess. Yeah, and that's why for this person, home base is perfect. Like, totally, you got you got plenty of time. I think you can accomplish your weight loss goal without worrying about any of that progression. Yeah. Just push yourself harder. Um, yeah, and I just and I partially say that too because I don't want people to think, well, once I get really good at. 10 reps of push-ups, I'll do 15 and that'll burn more fat. And then 20 will burn more fat. And then 30 will burn more fat. That's not really the case. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. You will build more muscular endurance. That's it. But if you want to burn more fat and build more muscle, both of which are more tie- closely tied together than muscular endurance is, you're going to have to do 10 reps, then 15 reps, then 20 reps, and yeah. then 10 reps with a 10-pound plate on your back or a weight vest. Because now you're progressively overloading that horizontal pressing movement, you know, so. Totally. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's uh, go to the next one. It is from Tanya. It says, I have heard you and other reputable trainers say you do not have to go to failure every set. Occasionally, though, it, it is good. My question is, in order for me to progress, I may start out at let's say two or three RIR, but each week I add a rep to a set. Sometimes I can't add weight, just an additional rep. Eventually I will get to zero RIR. So what do I do the following week? I hit zero RIR, so quote unquote failure. Do I hit failure again the following week or scale back one or two reps so I have, so I'm at one or, one to two RIR? That's a tongue twister. Yeah, there is, there's, two different routes to take with this and it's just how you decide to periodize it. Um, some people like to periodize it similar to how you just said where it would go week one, we're having like three to four reps in the tank week, two, two to three week, four, one to two week, week five or whatever week we're on now one. And then you go to failure. And then once you go to failure, you go back to RIR three, let's say, and you add weight or you add reps or you change exercise. Um, but sometimes you have to add weight in order to get to that. So it kind of depends. I don't like that model personally. Mm. Um, I, I personally like a descending RIR model for mostly everybody. I think for beginners, it teaches them what true failure is. And I think for um, more advanced people, it just gives you faster progressions and it's more motivating versus if I have to go four or five weeks before I finally hit an RIR of zero and then I come back to the start it's just a long progression model. And sometimes you have to add sets, you have to add loads, so your workout gets longer. I don't, I don't even like going to the gym and purposely leaving three, four reps in the tank. Mentally to me, I'm like, I don't feel like I'm working hard and I don't like that feeling. I would rather push it pretty damn hard every fucking week and progress static, like slowly, but like stacking the weight or the reps every week until I need a deload and then I repeat. Mm. So you can do this one of two ways, like I said. You can do a double progression model or a linear mod- progression model with the ascending RIR week to week like you talked about, which would be, or descending technically. You start week one with, let's say you're doing, you can do 10 reps, and then week two is eight reps, week three is six reps, week four is four reps. That's a uh, des- like that's a linear progression model. Um, volume lowers, intensity increases, and essentially as the load goes up, you are getting closer to your maximum threshold and failure. 
or you could keep it at 10 reps. Let's say you do double progression model would be you're doing between 10 to 15 reps and you start with an RIR of three. You have 100 pounds in the bar for easy math. Well, you have three reps left in the tank. So week two, you have two choices. You can do the same reps that you did last week, but add weight because now you have to go to RIR two and you have to have less reps in the tank, or you can do more reps because you have this 10 to 15 rep range buffer. But if you add weight and you notice, because you're really in tune with your RIR and your effort, you notice that you can also do more reps. Well, you're still in that range. So let's say week one, you did 100 pounds for 12 reps at RIR three. So you add five pounds, so it's 105 pounds, but you do 12 reps and you notice you still have three in the tank. Well, perfect. Like, Push it, go, yeah. go 13 reps, go 14 reps. You know, you're still in that range. I like that rep better than the linear model. Um, but my favorite way to do it is to either have, uh, I like using a linear progression with compound lifts, a, a double progression model method with um, accessory and isolation exercises. And most people do that too. It's just a better way of using them. And then the way I use RIR is I will go, if you have four sets, set one might be three reps in the tank set two might be two reps in the tank set three might be one rep in the tank set four is zero you go to failure um, if it is a compound lift we're probably going to go three two two one i don't want to go to failure on a compound lift because if you're doing a squat we don't need to go to failure yeah that's dangerous in my opinion um, unless you have safety pins you have squat rack and you're or, or uh, someone spotting you and you're like extremely advanced and you can know when to stop just not worth the risk isn't worth the reward in my opinion um Especially because with strength specifically, you um, hypertrophy is different, but strength specifically, it, it's more clear in the research that you don't need to go to failure. Hypertrophy, you probably do need to go to failure more often. Um, for strength, you're going to get the same neurological strength gains from doing 85% of your one rep max as you would 95% of your one rep max. However, the injury risk is way lower at 85 and the neurological fatigue is way lower. Totally. So if I'm doing lower rep squats strength, then I'm probably going to have an RIR of two across the board because I always just want to leave two in the tank. That means I'm not going all the way to failure, but I'm still doing enough and close enough to my maximum amount in order to get the strength gains. Hypertrophy, you want to take your muscle to exhaustion. So you do need to reach close to that failure, but it is safer to do because you're not doing it with 300 pounds for four reps. You're doing it with 200 pounds for eight, 10, 12 reps. Mm -hmm. It's just easier to back off or give up. Um, so with the, the descending RIR model, it's essentially just an easy way to slowly work to failure. And then if, if I go RIR three, two, one, zero across four sets of something like a dumbbell bench press or a curl or hip thrust or anything like that, that's safe to do so with the next week, I'm just going to add five pounds. I'm going to try to linear at linearly progress. Or if I did, if I had a double progression model, 10 to 15 reps in week one, it was like. I set one was 11 reps, set two was 13 reps, set three was 13 reps because it is a RIR one versus a RIR two, but I'm fatigued from the last set. And then the last one I do like 15, 16, 17 reps because I take it all the way to failure. Well, if I got over 15 reps, which was in that range, 10 to 15, then now I know that I need to add more load next week because clearly I can do more than the prescribed rep count if I go to failure. So a lot of my clients that started using this, they were like, holy shit, I have way more in the tank than I realized. And they started being able to gain strength way quicker, but it wasn't because they were literally gaining strength. It's because they were realizing totally. the strength they actually had, yeah. which is really cool. It's an empowering thing. But now you're lifting more weight and having more total volume and you're getting better results faster because we use this descending model. With the other model, doing it week by week, it takes you a whole month before you realize how much you got, you know, because you did... RIR three, RIR two, RIR one. Then week four, you go to failure and you're like, holy shit, 
I could have probably done way more reps on these all these weeks, you know, and I don't think it's worth it. When you go to RIR one, you're going a lot more. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's how I would do it. I, I think it's a better model, in my opinion. Um, Might make you second guess if that really was an RIR three. Yep. And, and after your first week or two, you learn that quick. So it just helps you in future progression so much more. Um, and again, like on exercises that we're trying to gain muscle with, you probably should take it to failure. I would say functional failure more often. It, it will limit how much volume you can do, but I think somebody would get better gains by doing four days a week and going to failure on those safe exercises more often than five days a week. You know what I mean? And not going to failure as often. Totally. Um, and I think the recovery would be the same because the total volume wouldn't be that much different. So, um, neurologically more fatiguing to go to failure, uh, physically more fatiguing to do more volume. But I think if you, if you compare to five day or six day split to a four day split, like it would equal out, you totally. know? Um, so I don't know. There's a lot of ways to skin a cat, but I think it comes down to preference. There's not enough research to prove my way is better than the other way. Or which model, the which model. Yeah. Yep. There's just not, um, I don't even think there's any research on either of those models. It's just research on failure and not failure. And then, and usually on strength more than anything. And then predicting what we think is best. Damn. Same thing with periodization, right? Yeah. Tons of periodization literature on Olympic lifting, powerlifting, soccer, football, rugby athletes, all these things, maybe one on bodybuilding. So we take all that for strength gains and go, based on what they're doing for those sports, we think it's best for bodybuilding. Mm. And bodybuilding would count for any gen pop who wants to build muscle and burn fat too. It's the same same goal, just a different level of extreme. Um, So, yeah, it's hard. I think Eric Helms always says, looking at the strength research on periodization and determining what's best for hypertrophy is like looking at tennis research to see what's the best training for swimming. And like, obviously that's an exaggeration. And I think he uses a different sport than tennis, but it's definitely not swimming that he uses, you know? So it's like this contrast and you kind of think you go, I mean, that's a good point. Like it's, they're both training. And if you took somebody who never did anything and you put him through training for tennis, he probably would get better at swimming because he's more physically fit now. Totally. You know what I mean? But is that give you an answer to what's the best way to train for swimming? No, Mm. not at all. So getting you physical fit. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, let's uh, we'll wrap it up there, guys. Uh, as always, check out our sponsors of the podcast, firstform.com slash tailored coaching method to check out all the things that they're dropping. They seem like they've been dropping some new new stuff lately, um, which I always really enjoy. They're sending some goodies for the attendees of the mastermind, which I'm excited to check out. Uh, our other sponsor, Giant Lifting. Uh, we will put that in the description. There is a special link to use to access our link and use our code TCM5 to save on shipping. Um, I'm excited about the giveaway I'll be doing with them. So make sure you guys are following them and myself because we will be doing random giveaways on Instagram and stuff like that um, as well. And as always, check out the uh, tailorcoachingmethod.com slash guide slash blog slash online dash coaching, all the things over there that can help you get better results. So thank you guys for listening. We appreciate you and we will catch you next time.